PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Crake Cast from Physical Therapy. This month, the special series on the rehabilitation of people with critical illness continues. Joining Dr. Crake in the second half of today's discussion will be all three guest editors, Dr. Patricia Utake, Dr. Dale Needham, and Dr. Dale Strasser. Now, here is PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Crick. Hello, and welcome to the February issue of Physical Therapy. I am delighted to tell you that there are 14 articles in this month's issue. The first four are research reports. The other 10, which follow, are part of the Critical Care Special Series, formally titled the Special Series on Rehabilitation of People with Critical Illness. The first paper is co-authored by a multidisciplinary team. The authors were very interested in determining whether persons with hip osteoarthritis and who were obese would have improved function if they exercised and lost weight. So this was an eight-month program of exercise along with a physical intervention. A dietitian was associated with the individuals helping them manage their weight. So I believe that this article lays a foundation for future more rigorous studies that allow us to examine a combination of nutrition and exercise and determine its effect on mediating osteoarthritis effects. The next article is entitled Participants' Perspectives on the Feasibility of a Novel, Intensive, Task-Specific Intervention for Individuals with Chronic Stroke. This is a qualitative study. This article really says, okay, if we give a very intensive intervention, and the intervention that they looked at was three hours per day over 10 consecutive days, what are the impressions of the patient or the client? They identified five major themes, including the patient's perception that there was fatigue, but it was manageable. It was a difficult dosage, but they felt that they could do it. It was too short. Ten consecutive days wasn't enough from these eight individuals' perspective, and they enjoyed the intervention. And finally, there was muscle soreness. So I think it's a way to get into the skin of the patient and view this intensive program from their perspective. The next article is entitled Comparison of Reliability, Validity, and Responsiveness of the Mini-Best Test and Berg Balance Scale in Patients with Balance Disorders. I hope you enjoy reading this article. It really does a very nice job presenting some of the psychometric properties of the two tests, looking for ceiling and floor effects, And basically, the bottom line of this article is that the mini-best appears to have a lower ceiling effect. So for those of you who are interested in falls or persons with balance disorders, I think you'll find this article of interest. The last article before we talk about the Critical Care Special Series is from a group at National Chang Kung University in Taiwan. And it talks about computerized evaluation and re-education biofeedback. These authors have designed a device, tested it in persons without peripheral nerve injury, and then explored the use of the device in an intervention for persons with peripheral nerve injuries. 
so it's a really comprehensive overview, and it helps a reader think about designing a device to suit the needs of a particular population. So I really encourage you to read this paper. I think you will learn a lot. We're now going to move on to the 10 articles that are a continuation of the critical care special issue. I am delighted to be joined by the co-editors, Dr. Patricia Otaki, who is an editorial board member and also an associate professor of rehabilitation science at the University of Buffalo in New York, Dr. Dale Strasser, who is an associate professor in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at Emory School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, and Dr. Dale Needham, who is an associate professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine and of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Johns Hopkins University and medical director of the critical care physical medicine and rehabilitation program at Johns Hopkins Hospital. I would like to ask Dr. Needham and Dr. Strasser to discuss quality improvement programs. As many of you know, I'm very interested in translational research and talking about how the patient fits into a quality improvement program is a really important topic. Dr. Needham. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I think it's important to think about quality improvement research along the continuum that goes from basic science research into clinical research into quality improvement projects taking that work from clinical research and figuring out how to best translate it into clinical care, taking it to the bedside to improve patient outcomes. And what's important to understand, of course, is that a large part of quality improvement is focused on behavior change. Having clinicians at the bedside do things differently and often involves an entire team of clinicians. With respect to the rigor, there's two important concepts, I think. One is that there are squire guidelines that talk about the reporting in a rigorous manner of quality improvement research, which I think is quite important for everybody to be aware of. So for those that are doing QI projects, to look to those guidelines, to have an understanding around the design and reporting and analysis of their work. Also, we published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, a user's guide to the medical literature for quality improvement reports so that people reading those reports can think about what do I need to consider when I review the report to understand if it is something that I should be using to change my practice. This is Dr. Strasser, and I was just going to add that the Squire guidelines also frankly make for better QI projects. And as a clinician, and many of us do also play managerial roles, I've all too often been in meetings where we're making decisions based on highly suspect data, and the Squire guidelines at least provide some structure to interpret internally collected material. We're now going to look at the articles that are contained within this issue's special series. I'm going to do something atypical for a Cratecast. We're not going to follow the usual order that you're going to see in the journal. So look at the authors and pull the articles relevant to the authors' names. The first article is entitled Effectiveness of an Early Mobilization Protocol in a Trauma and Burns Intensive Care Unit, a Retrospective Cohort Study. The team is led by Dr. Diane Clark, who is in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, and her multidisciplinary team. Dr. Needham, would you like to comment on this article? 
I think something to highlight from that paper is it was a large retrospective cohort study where there were over 2,000 ICU patients considered in comparing two 12-month periods. And the usual care period had around 1,000 patients, and the intervention period had about 1,100 patients. And the difference is a higher intensity or frequency of physical therapy interventions during the latter intervention period. And there was no difference in adverse effects, importantly, that were demonstrated. And although there was no difference in mortality, duration of mechanical ventilation or ICU length of stay, in a hospital length of stay analysis adjusted for injury severity, there was a 1.5-day decrease in hospital length of stay. That wasn't statistically significant, but I think it's important that when we go to our administrators and talk about these issues, we're often not talking to them about p-values. We're talking about what was actually demonstrated and found, which is an important thing to consider. And then as far as statistically significant results, I think it was very important to recognize that the latter intervention group with more than a 1,000 patients had documented fewer complications, including things like pulmonary emboli, pneumothoraces, pneumonia, DVT. And those are really novel contributions of this large-scale quality improvement project in a trauma and burn population. Dr. Strasser, is there anything you would like to add? Dr. Needham makes some excellent points. I want to reiterate one point he alluded to earlier and that in this paper, one of the initial motivations for doing this retrospective detailed analysis was in fact the cost implications. For the administrators, this study also showed that the added PT FTEs, yet PT personnel was associated with a reduced length of stay and lower cost and was in fact quite cost effective. So it was a great example of a win-win situation where you have better care that's also less expensive. The next article that we're going to discuss is by Andra Lay and her colleagues at Central DuPage Hospital in Winfield, Illinois. The title of the paper is Move to Improve the feasibility of using an early mobility protocol to increase ambulation in the intensive and immediate care settings. Dr. Needham, what are the unique aspects of this quality improvement program? So I think Andrew Lay and colleagues really have a number of important innovations here. What they were doing as part of their QI work was designing and implementing a mobility order set that had an embedded algorithm to specifically guide nursing assessment of mobility potential and think about appropriate consultation of PT and OT as needed. They also included, in addition to a mixed medical surgical ICU, an adult intermediate care unit, which is very important when we're thinking about the continuity of care of our patients. And what they found was six months following implementation of their initiative that they were able to increase ambulation rates for these patients over threefold in the adult ICU and over fourfold in the intermediate care unit. I think one of the unique aspects that this Drolet study highlights is an issue that was raised by Ramona Hopkins and colleagues in the December issue of PTJ. In that article, they talked about how their very engaged and successful ICU rehabilitation model did not carry over when patients were discharged out of the ICU down to the ward. There was a marked decrease in their mobility level. So by Drolet and colleagues having the intermediate care unit as part of this model, I think it really does help improve the mobility of patients across the continuum of care. 
So I think that was another unique aspect worth highlighting. The next article is from a team at Capital Health in Trenton, New Jersey. The first author is Dr. Brian Okowski. The title of the manuscript is Safety and Feasibility of an Early Mobilization Program for Patients with Aneurysmal Subarachnoid Hemorrhage. Dr. Otaki, would you like to comment on this paper? To put this in context, survivors of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage are often faced with complicated recoveries that include surgery, prolonged monitoring in the ICU, and often extended periods of bed rest. So these authors took what was known about the improved outcomes with early mobility of patients with critical illness in medical, surgical, and respiratory ICUs and applied it to their patient population of these individuals who had survived a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And they found that the 25 patients included in their program met the criteria for safe participation and rehab activities for 86% of the sessions that were attempted. And this is quite significant considering how unstable and complicated the postoperative course for these individuals is. The 30-day mortality for the study was 0%. So really, the bottom line from this study was that these investigators were able to extend the findings of improved outcomes associated with early rehabilitation interventions to this unique surgical neurologic patient population. We're now going to look at a profession watch paper that appears in the special series. The title is What Follows Survival of Critical Illness, Physical Therapist Management of Patients with Post-Intensive Care Syndrome. This is co-authored by Anita Bemis-Doherty, who is a member of the Department of Practice of the American Physical Therapy Association, and James Smith, who is the president of the acute care section, as well as a member of the Department of Physical Therapy at Utica College. Dr. Strasser, what are your thoughts about this paper? Well, it was a pleasure to review this paper, and I think it's a wonderful introduction for physical therapists and, frankly, other rehabilitation professionals wanting to know what the APTA is doing in this area, a review of the literature, and to outline some of the research. This was an invited commentary. They present the history of how the APTA became involved with the Society of Critical Care Medicine and then subsequent actions that have been taken. A pivotal event occurred in September 2010 when the Society of Critical Care Medicine, or SCCM, convened a group of interested stakeholders. The APTA was an active participant in this, and what follows in this commentary was really initiated through this conference. One comment I would also like to make on this commentary is, frankly, one of a little jealousy. I'm a PMNR physician, and frankly, in this area, members of the APTA are ahead of my colleagues in physical medicine and rehabilitation. My last comment is basically, I think that in some regards, the commentary understates the potential role of physical therapy. I think physical therapy and related rehabilitation professionals can impact in a positive way the social climate and the hospital culture in intensive care units, and they can do this both by their participation as team members in the delivery of services and also what some people have referred to as shared leadership roles in directing and offering interventions for the patients. Finally, the commentary makes, I think, a vital point in contemporary health care that there is a continuum of services. And so it's useful to think of the episode of care of a critical illness, which can involve 
uh, ICU setting, but also involve general medical setting, sometimes acute inpatient rehab setting, subacute and home. And physical therapists and other rehabilitation professionals play an important role or should play an important role in assisting with the handoffs and the continuum of services across these individual settings. Dr. Needham, you are instrumental in organizing the Society for Critical Care Medicine's task force that Dr. Strasser mentioned, and I wonder if there's anything else that you would like to add. Thanks for that opportunity. So I was part of the planning committee for the initial task force, and I'm also part of the planning committee for the ongoing task force related to this. APTA has played a very important role in this, And we've also engaged what we believe are most of the other very important organizations in this field, recognizing that we really need collaboration to address this. The issue of post-intensive care syndrome was really raised as a term to help increase the awareness and education of all of the clinicians regarding the complications that patients very frequently have after the ICU. They frequently have a combination of physical, psychiatric, and cognitive complications that impair their strength activities of daily living, their memory, their executive function, and perhaps their mood and anxiety. So all of those things may affect patients for a very long period of time and often are not reflected or considered as part of the ICU experience when patients are going down with their follow-up. So through this term, post-intensive care syndrome or PICS, we're hoping to raise that profile and get more people understanding and interested in helping these patients in the recovery process. The next article is entitled, Issues Affecting the Delivery of Physical Therapy Services for Individuals with Critical Illness. The authors are Amy Pollack and John Kress, both of whom are from the University of Chicago Medical Center. Dr. Otaki, what is your thought about this paper? This article is really timely because Pollock and Kress address issues facing the profession as the demand for physical therapists prepared to work in the ICU increases. As we've been exploring throughout this special series, there's been an increase in rehabilitation programs in ICUs to manage people with critical illness and therefore an increased demand for physical therapists to be part of the ICU team. And these authors really examine, is the profession ready to meet this increased demand? They look at educational strategies to help develop both entry-level physical therapists as well as physical therapists that are currently practicing that want to move into this practice area. They describe ICU staffing models and some of the requirements for including physical therapists on the rehabilitation teams. They also examine issues related to the prioritization of physical therapy service delivery in an acute care hospital. So, for example, are you putting more of your limited resources towards the ICU or are you putting more towards patients that are requiring discharge? So, as rehabilitation of people with critical illness evolves, these issues really need to be recognized and addressed. So, I think this paper makes a really unique contribution to the special series and I'm very excited about it because it really challenges the profession to move forward in this practice area. The next article is entitled Physical Therapist Management of Patients with Ventricular Assist Devices, Key Considerations for the Acute Care Physical Therapist. This article is authored by Chris Wells, who is from the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Maryland. I'd like to give a little anecdotal story. When John Barnes, who's the CEO of the American Physical Therapy Association, came to Philadelphia during his first year, I welcomed him to Philadelphia and we held a reception so that he could meet the chairs of the various programs. 
my mission was to introduce to John Barnes the vast array of physical therapy services that we provide. So I took him to the University of Pennsylvania, and one of his experiences was to be in the ICU, seeing a physical therapist, walking a patient who had a ventricular assist device. I was amazed because I hadn't seen one, and that's four years ago, and he was shocked as well. So I'm delighted to see this paper in this special series. Dr. Otaki, what are your thoughts on this paper? I agree with you, Dr. Craig. The management of patients with ventricular assist devices is really exciting. As the incidence of heart failure continues to increase, there are more and more patients with end-stage disease that are receiving ventricular assist devices, not as a bridge to transplant, which some still are, but more as destination therapy, meaning that this is how they are going to continue to live their lives. Dr. Wells discusses important information regarding the management of these patients with VADS and gives a really good overview of the physical therapist's role in the preoperative phase, the postoperative phase, and then also in assisting these patients to transition to living in the community. The next article that we're going to discuss is entitled Simulation Experience Enhances Physical Therapist Student Confidence in Managing a Patient in the Critical Care Environment. The first author is Dr. Patricia Otaki. I'm delighted to see this article in our journal. In our physical therapy department at Arcadia University, we've had this discussion about the need to develop an environment to simulate what the students are going to see when they're actually in an intensive care unit or in an acute care setting. So I think this article provides excellent guidelines for faculty members who might be interested in engaging in this type of demonstration to the students. So thank you, Dr. Otaki. Would you like to add additional comments? In our study, we describe an educational experience where physical therapist students engaged in the early rehabilitation of a simulated patient in a simulated ICU. And this simulation experience provided an opportunity for these students to begin to develop the skills necessary for ICU practice. We found in our study that simulation enhanced student confidence in their technical skills, such as auscultation, bed mobility, dealing with the tubes and lines. In their behavioral skills, these would primarily be communication with a ventilated patient, with an ICU nurse, and also in their clinical decision-making skills where they had to recognize a patient's status change and respond appropriately. With the increase in confidence that these students experience while managing a patient in a critical care environment, they may be more likely to engage in acute care and critical care clinical practice when they graduate, and thus they'll be contributing to a physical therapy workforce ready to provide rehabilitation in the ICU. So the last three articles that we're going to discuss are all case reports or a case series. The first case report is written by Barbara Smith and her colleagues from the University of Florida, Gainesville. The title of the paper is Inspiratory Muscle Strength Training in Infants with Congenital Heart Disease and Prolonged Mechanical Ventilation. Dr. Otaki, would you like to comment on this case report? Thank you, Dr. Craig. This is an interesting case report in that Smith and her colleagues describe a unique inspiratory muscle training program for two infants who were ventilator dependent after cardiac surgery. We know that in adults, inspiratory muscle training helps to strengthen the diaphragm and inspiratory muscle training for individuals who are mechanically ventilated facilitates weaning from the ventilator. However, we really don't know much about this phenomenon in infants. 
So I think this paper is really exciting in that it lays the foundation for some more rigorous studies of this intervention. I agree, and I'm really excited to see it because it's not only infants with congenital heart disease. There are so many infants that are on mechanical ventilators, so we really do need some rigorous research in this area. The next case report is entitled Innovative Mobility Strategies for the Patient with Intensive Care Unit Acquired Weakness. The authors are Darren Trees and his colleagues. Dr. Otaki, would you like to comment on this case report? This case report, I think, is wonderful to have in this special series because it's a very clear description of a very typical presentation of a patient with ICU-acquired weakness. And the reason I really like this case report is because the authors provide a four-phase graded mobility program algorithm, and the case report demonstrates how they've used this graded mobility program algorithm for the management of this particular patient from complete functional dependence to independent ambulation. So the last article that we're going to discuss in the Critical Illness Special Series is entitled Physical Rehabilitation of Patients in the Intensive Care Unit Requiring Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation. This is a case series. Dr. Needham, would you like to provide the last comments on this paper that was written by you and your group? Sure. I think it's important for listeners to know a little bit about extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO. So this is an intervention that's becoming increasingly popular for patients that are the very sickest in the intensive care unit with acute respiratory failure and often failing even maximum amounts of traditional life support with mechanical ventilation. This isn't an especially common therapy. It's often done in only a small number of specialized centers, but its utilization is increasing and there's more literature about it, which is why I think this is an important topic to address. This is a three-patient case series and Each of the patients had intensive rehabilitation while they were critically ill, even while they were on mechanical ventilation, but these patients went on to require extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And the first patient had a very large ECMO cannula in the femoral area that really limited the patient's ability to engage while the patient was on ECMO in physical rehabilitation. However, there is a different catheter that avoids the need for the femoral area catheterization. And these second two patients in the case series really demonstrate the ability to begin physical rehabilitation even while patients are on ECMO, provided there's collaboration with the entire team for these patients' sedation to be reduced and allow them to mobilize. And that was what we were trying to begin to convey to readers here in just a small three-patient series. And this is also part of a larger body of literature that is mentioned in the article to show that other centers are also thinking about these types of interventions as well. So just in summary, I think the three of us really hope that the articles in this issue and in the prior December 2012 issue motivate you to examine your practice with your patients with critical illness from the ICU right through to the community setting. We encourage you to consider the quality improvement projects as well as the clinical interventions described in these two issues of the special series and ask yourself whether you are translating research evidence into your daily practice. Dr. Needham. I really think that this special issue marks the beginning 
or an early stage of where the field is really to go. This is a very, very exciting field. We're gaining an awful lot of momentum, and I think that this special issue really will play an important role in engaging the readership to think about their own practice and to think about the new research that's going to be needed to push things forward. So I think this really is a very important advance. Dr. Strasser? I certainly agree with what Dr. Needham has said. I think it's a very exciting time for the field and the various fields within rehabilitation medicine and the collaboration with critical care personnel. I also would like to just make a brief comment on what an honor it's been to work with my co-editors on this and to work with the staff of the PT Journal. It's a very high-quality caliber staff. You produce a product of high standards, and it truly has been a stimulating work project. So in closing, I hope you are excited as I am about the February issue. I thank the co-editors. You did a spectacular job and all of the authors. I am so excited by the December issue and these 10 articles that I'm really considering changing my path and going out to see if I can help develop acute care specialization and become a practicing clinician again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org and be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.